comes. Well, the Lord bless you today. Amen. The Lord has given me what I think is a very different message. Um, and I, I really hope that I can convey what I feel like the Lord has showing me and has shown me. Uh, so is, there's going to be a lot of detail here. So I apologize for that. But I've got to really lay a good foundation for what now the Lord is showing us. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. I'm going to read eight verses of Scripture, and we usually stand out of respect to the Word of God, if you don't mind. I know you've been standing during the worship, uh, but it's just uh, eight verses of Scripture. Amen. And uh, to this lady over here, I, I don't think I've ever met you before, um, but the Lord was talking to me earlier about how to let you know that He is healer. He is your healer, and He will touch you. And I just want to encourage you with that, and I hope you receive that in Jesus' name. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting at verse 1, and it says, And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag, there's a city, on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and had smitten, or uh, they invaded Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein, and they slew not any, either, go, either great or small, uh, but carried them away and went on their way. So David, this is verse 3, so David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. In other words, they had no more tears left. Verse 5, and David, David's two wives were taken ca captive, Ahoanim, uh, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. Verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because of the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abahar, Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. I'm going to explain that in a minute, but uh, it says, Bring me hither the ephod. And Abathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop, or shall I pursue this enemy? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. And uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your presence here already. Thank you for the hearts that you've touched, those that you've ministered to thank you for speaking healing into our lives and thank you for your sweet power and presence is here bless your people bless this message i pray that whatever it needs to mean to each and every individual it's going to be different for every person that's going to be here but whatever they need i'm asking that you would bless them with what they need today in jesus name amen god bless you, you may be seated now, I realize I'm speaking about something that happened in the Old Testament. And when uh, David uh, was in a very distressful place, the Bible says he called for the ephod. The ephod was a garment that priests would wear. It was sleeveless. It was uh, mostly worn by priests and also worship leaders. Uh, but it was probably, I guess the way if I could try to describe it, it was most like an apron. And I want to give you a little timeline of David. David, of course, is, uh, we call him King David, and you know David that slew the giant and all of that. 
but I want to give you a little bit of a timeline. David, uh, at the age of about 10, between 10 and 13 years old or so, he was anointed to be the next king. He was anointed by Samuel to be the next king between age 10 and 13 or so. And then David served Saul as kind of a, an ad hoc musical capacity. Whenever Saul was discouraged, they would call David, and David would play and would comfort Saul, who was the present king at the time. And after that, David defeats Goliath somewhere probably between the age of 15 and 17 years old is when David uh, killed or slain uh, Goliath. And because of his reputation, David was appointed to be the armor bearer to King Saul. But Saul began to get very jealous of David, and he tries to kill him. Saul banishes David from his court, but yet he makes him commander of a, of a troop of a thousand men. And because of his success as a warrior, God offered him the hand of his daughter, Michal. And, but Saul's intent to do that is to offer her as a snare to David. Michal marries David. She loves him. Later on, Jonathan was warning, and also Michal did as well, that David, warning David because of what, what Saul had planned for, uh, for, for him. And, and so they warn David, and he flees to a city called Ramah. And Saul pursued after David, but the Lord stopped him and would not let him continue to go against David. And later on in life, David flees to a city called Nob, and there he is helped by the high priest, or one of the priests, I'm sorry, Ahimelech. And David hides right after that in a cave of Adullam. You need to kind of picture this as one event after another after another that David is seemingly, not, not just seemingly, but being pursued by Saul. Saul, the king at the time, considered David a great enemy. And David runs, but he yet, yet would not lift his hand against the man of God. And God hides him from Saul after that in the desert of Ziph. And then Saul pursues David to a city called En Gedi. And again, this is over a period of about 20 years. David uh, uh, snuck out and cut the corner of Saul's robe to let Saul know, I could have killed you but I didn't do it. And Saul leaves that cave, and David pleads for his cause. And Saul says he would not harm him. Again, later on, David is living off the land as he encounters Nabal and Abigail and Mount Carmel. Then David, in David's absence, Saul gives Michal, his wife, to another man. And then David encounters Saul and 3,000 men in his camp in Hikla. They're being betrayed of the Zephites and, uh, the second time. And there Saul, uh, David spares Saul's life again. And Saul repents of his pursuit of David, and David doesn't trust him. But then David flees to Gath a second time with 600 men and their families. And Saul stops at that point his pursuit of David. Then David moves from there to a city called Ziklag. This is where David serves the Philistines. And note this, that the Philistines are the enemies of the Israelites. David serves the Philistines for over a year. And for about 20 years, David is pursued by King Saul in one fashion or another. 
But David chooses to live literally off the land, and he chooses to leave the, his ancestry, the ancestry, the place where his fellow Hebrews lived, the people of God lived. And this is a type of walking away from God. Now I want you to kind of picture this for a moment. For 20 years, David is doing everything right. He's serving Israel. He's fighting the enemies of the Jewish people. He's living right. He's refusing to lift his hand against the man of God. But the man of God, in this case, King Saul, kept pursuing him time and time and time again. For 20 years, David would do what's right, and King Saul would do what's wrong. He is doing his best to serve God and to serve Israel. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. For 20 years, a jealous king, the jealous king Saul, made David's life miserable. Who can blame, blame David for leaving the, the land of his Jewish heritage and moving to the land of his, of his enemy, of Israel's enemy, of the enemies of the Jews? But there, the Bible tells us that he is no longer being pursued by, by Saul. But also, and it's interesting to note this, that David even began to fight with and for the Philistines. And remember this, the Philistines are the enemies of God's people. But David is fighting with them and for them. In fact, David is even invading Israelite lands or Jewish lands with the Philistines. It's almost like he turned his back on God. It's almost like he turned his back on his faith and on his walk with God and on God himself. That's where we now, as I read to you out of 1 Samuel chapter 30, where we see David and how it's recorded there, how David and his men were all fighting with the Philistines. They were invading Israelites' lands. And then God allows David's city, the city of Ziklag, to be invaded by the Amalekites. Maybe God was trying to remind him, you don't belong here, you belong with your people. You don't belong walking away from me. You belong with the people of God. Now, just kind of hold on to that thought for a minute. And as they were off, as David and his army was off, the Amalekites came and they invaded David's city, Ziklag, and there they took the people captive. They didn't kill anybody. They didn't kill any animals. They took everyone and everything captive, but they burnt the city. The Amalekites had intended to sell the captives as slaves. This is where we see David. Then David and his men, as, and as his men are coming, they are they're walking the dusty roads to Ziklag as someone notices the smoke arising from the city. And they knew that that was the direction. They knew that that was their city that was on fire. And so they began to run. And they ran towards Ziklag as they realized uh, that it was literally burning to the ground. And they, they went to their homes and their homes are gone. And they looked for their families and their families are gone. They looked for their herds and their herds were gone. Uh, and they, they, they were so distressed, the Bible says, 
that they began to weep and they began to mourn. They mourned and they wept until they had no more tears left. Perhaps, I believe, maybe the Lord permitted this raid on Ziklag to encourage David to get out of the enemy's territory and to get back with the people of God where he belonged. Somebody say amen. The Amalekites burned the city. That act of vengeance on their part was probably a message from the Lord to David to say that you need to return to Judah. You need to return to Israel. And then in 2 Samuel 30 and verse 6, and I again, bear with me, I know there's a lot of detail here. But in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 it says, David was greatly distressed. Notice this. For the people spake of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Hear this. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. This is probably the lowest point that David had ever faced in his life. 20 years of being pursued by his enemy. 20 years of being pursued by King Saul. And now he gets home and his family is gone. His wives are gone. His daughters, his sons are gone. His home is gone. His possessions are gone. And also his friends, his fellow warriors, People that he fought shoulder to shoulder with are now talking about stoning him to death. And the Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. That's when David does something very amazing. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, and it says, And David said to Abahar, Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abathah brought thither the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered and said, This is the Lord answering, said, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. David calls for the ephod. It is a garment worn by priests. And upon that ephod is uh, many uh, decorations and things, but on the shoulders they had these two stones. And those stones were often used kind of as a petition to the Lord, shall we do this or shall we do that? One of those stones was black, the other one was white, and black would mean no and white would mean yes, and they would pray. And almost like casting lots, if the right answer came up, they would follow that direction either to not pursue or to pursue. But I want to transition for just a moment. Some of you may have seen this over here. But this that I purchased the other day because I feel like the Lord wanted me to show you something. This is called a tallit. This is a prayer shawl. I want to show you what it looks like. I'm going to show you a lot that relates to this. But in some ways, it's very much like the ephod. 
in its function. The ephod was used by the priests and also by the Jewish people when they prayed. Later on, the Lord would show them in Deuteronomy that they would put tassels or fringes on their garments and that that would be a garment they could use for prayer. This that I have on my shoulders is called a tallit. It is a prayer covering. It is a shawl. And I'm not saying, by the way, don't take this message too far and say that everybody needs to go out and get one. You don't have to go out and get one. But David calls for the ephod, the prayer shawl. And he seeks God. And God says, pursue them. Maybe it's like drawing lots, but David is asking upon the Lord for the ephod, and he talked to God, and God told him to pursue. At this point is when his friends are turning to him after he lost everything, and David calls for that ephod, and he begins to worship. He begins to praise God. He begins to glorify the Lord. When you can turn to God and seek him, and when you can worship him is often when your situation will turn from defeat to victory. David was worshiping through the pain. He was worshiping through the loss. He was worshiping at a low place in his life. David lost everything. His wife was gone. His children were gone. His possession was gone. The city was burned to the ground. His home was gone. Twenty years of being pursued by King Saul. And now it comes to this. He literally has nothing. And in that low estate, he begins to call upon the Lord. He calls for that ephod, that prayer shawl. And he begins to talk to the Lord. Even his friends, his fellow soldiers, spoke of killing him, and they had cried till there were no more tears. That's when he called for the ephod. Now let me show you something. I don't remember if this is on. Uh, I don't think I gave them these, these uh, scriptures. But in Numbers chapter 15, what I have on my shoulder is called a tallit. And by the way, when you, when you look at the definition of that, it means a closet. A closet. Look at your neighbor and say a closet. Well, I think the Bible says something in the New Testament about a closet. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But in Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41, it says, And the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments. Do you see what is hanging from this tallit here? I'm going to describe this in just a minute, but these are fringes. There are 613 of them on this garment. I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. But he said in verse 38, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garment throughout their generations. Put them upon the fringe of the borders, a ribbon of blue, and it shall be unto you a fringe that you might look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. That you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which you use to go a whoring. 
that you might remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. The Bible tells us that we can closet ourselves in prayer. The closet uh, is a place where we can communicate with God. And when we look at this that I have on my shoulders, the tallit, which is a prayer shawl, it is symbolic of both separation and the oneness of God. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, notice what it says. But when you pray, enter into your room and shut it. Shut the door and pray to your Father which is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret shall reward you. Jesus, being a Jew, likely would have worn what I have on my shoulders right now. It's likely that much of the time he was dressed and wore a garment like this, a tallit, a prayer shawl, a place, a, a thing that showed him that he was, or showed people that he was a child of God. If you will think about this for a moment, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 20, it talks about a woman who had been sick for many years. And the Bible says that she spent all her living on doctors, all her money, all her livelihood on doctors, and they could not heal her. And we look and see in the scripture in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 20, it says, And behold, a woman who had a, a flaw of blood or a flow of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched, what is it, the hem of his garment. She was touching his prayer shawl. She was touching his prayer covering. She was touching his closet, that place that he went to pray, that thing that represented his, his um, communication with God, his relationship with the Lord. That prayer closet was his tallit, and it could be that when she reached up to touch the hem of his garment, she was touching this. I'm going to try to describe this to you. A tallit is a four-cornered prayer shawl with specially knotted fringes. There are 16, six, I'm sorry, 613 strands that come from this garment. In these corners, on all four corners, you can't see them from where you're at, but there are five knots. Each of those knots representing an Old Testament book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In other words, it's representing the law, the Word of God. And the 613 tassels or strings that are dangling from this prayer shawl represent the commandments of God. There are 630 total commandments. I know we talk about the big ones. But there are 630, 613 total commandments. 
And so when they put this on, they're putting on the Word of God. And these tassels represent the law of God and the oneness and the holiness of God. The tallit is, in a sense, a, a portable spiritual home or a prayer closet. It is also used for the, Jew, the Jewish people when they have a wedding ceremony. They will have a canopy over where the bride and groom are married. That is a tallit. It's not the same smaller tallit that somebody would wear, but it is the same thing in the sense that it is constructed much the same way. And the corners have these big tassels on them, and they have the same amount of knots. But also, when a Jewish person passes away, they bury them in one of these, in a tallit. But furthermore, if a parent's child became sick, they would wrap that child in this, the prayer cloth or the prayer robe, the tallit. And they thought, the way they thought was this, that their prayers would be magnified for their child's healing. As they would pray, they would walk the floors of their homes praying for their child as their child is covered in prayer. Are you still with me or am I boring you this morning? Stick with me for just a little while. The meaning of the knots of the tallit, as I mentioned a little moment ago, is there are 613, which represents the 613 guidelines or laws found in the Torah. The Torah is the Jewish Bible. In Numbers 15 and 39, it says, And it, it shall be unto you, this is what the Lord's commandment is saying to Israel, it shall be unto you a fringe that you should that you may look upon it. He was letting the Israelites, Israelites know that when you look at this, I'm reminding you, I'm reminding you of who you are. I'm reminding you that you're a child of God. He said, I want you to put these fringes on the on the robes of your garments, on the corners of your garments. Uh, so when you look on these, uh, I want to remind you that you are my child. You're a child of Israel, a child of God. He said, when you put it uh, unto you uh, the, for the fringe, you, shall, you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them that you seek not after your own heart or after your own eyes, after which you use to go a-whoring. He's letting them know this needs to be a reminder that you are a child of God. The corners, that, as I said a little while ago, have five knots. And in fact, many of you might have already noticed that I'm hanging on to this as I am ministering to you today. It's because the Israelites would take their hands and they would hold on to these knots. They would hold on to these corners as they prayed, as they talked to God. It was a way of letting them know we are holding on to the promises of God. When praying, they would hold on to these tassels, tassels in the corners of the tallit. When holding on to these fringes, they are saying they are honoring God's oneness. They are honoring His holiness. There's, uh, there's also another teaching on the knots that is the five knots equal the five first words of what is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is a representative of the first five words of that quotation. 
The tassels on the four corners meant that God would bring his people from the four corners of the earth. Somebody say praise God for that. He would remind them, I'm going to bring my children from the north, the south, the east, and the west. I'm going to bring them because they are mine. Psalm 61 and verse 4 says, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the cover of thy wings, Selah. What is that talking about? That is talking about, I believe, this prayer shawl. In, Psalm, I mean, in Matthew 6 and verse 6 it says, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, uh, pray unto thy Father in secret. And it goes on from there. But what the Lord is showing us uh, is that when we go into our place of prayer, there is a covering. No, the child of God today in the New Testament doesn't need to have a prayer shawl to go to prayer. But when we go upon our knees to pray, it is as though we are being covered in prayer. That's when, going back, David had called for the ephod, the prayer covering. And I've got to take this off. It's getting warm under this thing. But David had called for the ephod. He had called for that prayer covering. And that's when he began to communicate to the Lord. But we also see earlier and remember, think about that prayer shawl, that prayer covering. David, when he went to Ziklag and Ziklag was burned with fire and his family was gone, he called for the ephod. And there he communicated with God. But later on, we see in the scripture years later that David wore an ephod when, he brought, when they brought the ark into Jerusalem. I want to show you something. Most of you have heard that when David danced before the Lord, he danced naked. The answer to that is no, he didn't. I'm going to show you something if you've never seen this before. In 2 Samuel, this is when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6.14, it says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with what? A linen ephod. Ah, some people say he was dancing naked. He wasn't dancing naked. He had that linen ephod on. Uh, What I'm trying to show you is that this was David's commitment to prayer and worship. Uh, When David was in his lowest, uh, he didn't complain to God. He didn't complain to the people of God. Uh, What he did is he put on that ephod uh, and said, now I'm going to take it before the Lord. Uh, Now I'm going to go to my place of worship. Now I'm going to go to my place of prayer. Uh, The People are talking about stoning me to death. But God, I'm going to take my cause to you, and I'm going to take my cause to you alone. At his lowest place, David is saying, I am going to worship God. So we need to understand that when David was in his low points, And even going back to what I just read you in 2 Samuel 6, how when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into into Israel, into the lands of the people of God, it says that he began to worship. He put on that prayer shawl. He put on that ephod, and he began to worship the Lord. When we look at David's life, we will see 
how whenever David hit low points in his life, he didn't cry and complain, he worshipped. Did you hear that? When David's baby died, he worshipped. When he killed Goliath, he worshipped. Here and again in Scripture, you will see that when he lost everything, he worshipped. Right as his friends were talking about killing him, he worshipped. He called for the ephod and said, I am going to worship the Lord. He pulled it upon his shoulders. He began to walk back and forth and call upon his God. I believe David was saying, here I am, God. I left Jerusalem because I was being tired of being pursued by Saul. I was tired of living in caves. I was tired of sleeping with one eye open at night. I was tired of always trying to do the right thing. And it seemed when I did the right thing, everything I got returned to me was grief and was pain. So here I am in Egypt. He was disappointed. He was upset. His enemies were pursuing him. And his friends were talking about taking his life. But now he is talking to God. And God is showing him, if you will call upon me, I will answer. I will bless you, and I will keep you. So even though David, I believe, was walking back and forth and saying to the Lord, I know I've messed up. I know that I walked away from the church. I know that I walked away from serving you. I know I walked away from the people of God, but I'm here to worship you. And the Bible talks about how David at, at, at different points in his life began to dance before the Lord. Uh, David was beginning to worship. Uh, when everything was wrong, uh, when everything was going the wrong way, David begins to worship. Amen. And I, I think I need to say this. I'm not sure David's worship was very pretty. Later on, when David would worship before the Ark of the Covenant, I don't think there was anything pretty about it. In fact, I, I think some people were thinking, David's the king and he's doing that. Ooh. We know that Michael was thinking that. Because when, she showed, when David came to salute his family and honor his family, Michael looked at him and said, oh, David. And you made a fool of yourself today. And David said to her, if I get a chance to worship the Lord again, I'm going to do it. But next time I do it, I'm going to do it better than I did this time. That ought to be our attitude. Uh, this message is about worshiping the Lord. When you are in your low of low places, uh, when you are in that place of desperation, uh, when you are in that place when it seems like everything is going the wrong way, you're trying to go north and everything is going south. Uh, you're trying to talk to God. You're trying to get an answer from the Lord. Uh, and it seems like everything is going against you. That's not a time to boo-hoo. That is a time to put on the prayer shawl, to put on your worship, to put on that talit, to put on that ephod, and say, I am going to worship. We have got to understand one thing the devil hates more than anything else is our worship. He will try to get you to feel tired on Sunday morning. He'll try to get you upset with a brother or sister in the church. He'll try to, you know, even, and some of you know this, on your way to church, you, you can be good all week, but on your way to church, everybody's fighting. Does that happen in your house? You get in the car, it seems like the devil got in the car with you. 
The devil's trying to what? Discourage your what? Your worship. If he could get you all wrapped up in what happened on the way to church instead of on the Lord Jesus Christ, <laughs> the devil is a liar. Somebody shout it. The devil's a liar. I'm not trying to diminish your discouragement, your pain, your sickness, your trouble. I'm not trying to diminish that. But I'm trying to point you in the right direction. If you want to get over that, if you want to get past that, put on that prayer shawl. Put on that garment of praise. The Bible says that we can put on a garment of praise for a what? Spirit of heaviness. <laughs> that heaviness comes. It, it, it hits us all. But when that heaviness comes, when, when, when you don't got enough money to pay attention, you, your bills are coming in, and you, there's more bills coming in than money's coming in. Uh, and there's no food in the closet, and there's all kind of stuff going wrong. Uh, even people you thought were your friends, you find out they're not really your friends. Uh, everything's going wrong. Everything's messed up. Uh, but somehow in the midst of that, uh, Take yourself to that place of covering. Take that place to yourself of prayer. Take yourself to that place of worship and begin to exalt God. And when you do, you will see miraculous things happen. If you will follow the story, when David began to pray and God said, pursue, David did. Now, Take this, you got to understand this. His wives are gone, his kids are gone, his stuff is gone. All their herds are gone, his house is burnt to the ground, his friends don't even like him anymore. And God said, Pursue. David, along with the men that could go, they pursued the Amalekites. And understand, it started in a place of worship. We all got that? Look at your neighbor and say, worship. It started in a place of worship. So when David worshiped, instead of complained, God said, now I'm going to show you how to get your stuff back. So David pursues the Amalekites. They defeat the Amalekites. He gets his wife back. He gets his kids back. He gets his stuff back. But you know what else? He gets all the stuff that the Amalekites took from other cities too. Because the Amalekites didn't just rage or, or, or didn't just raid Ziklag. They had raid, raided many cities. There was a lot of stuff there. So because David worshipped the Lord, David got all his stuff back. And he got a whole bunch of stuff he didn't even plan on back. God poured out his blessings upon David. But I want to show you something, and I don't think I have it in my notes here. I'm not sure. Uh, but, uh, but David, when he got all that stuff back, uh, he, he, he could have kept it, but he kept his stuff. And he said, you all can have the rest because my God's always going to take care of me. So I'm going to read it. I do have it in my notes. I was just not thinking right at the moment. But notice this in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 16. It says, and when he had brought him down, 
Behold, they were, talked about the Amalekites, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. Notice verse 17, and David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped, notice this, there escaped not a man of them save 400 young men that rode upon camels and fled. In other words, he totally defeated the Amalekites other than those that got away quickly. Verse 18, and David recovered all the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing, notice this, nothing lacking unto them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all and David took all the flocks and all the herds which they had drained before the other cattle and said this is David's spoil God told David when you pursue your enemy you're going to get everything back but it started here in this place of worship it didn't start with the boo-hoo it started with God I'm going to worship you I know it doesn't make any sense I know everybody's going to look at me like I lost it like I'm out of my mind. I should have be off in the corner somewhere curled up in the fetal position saying, oh God, take my life. But David says, I'm not going to do that. In this place of desperation, I'm going to praise God. Hear me today, child of God. If ever you need to praise the Lord, it's when things aren't going right. We think praising the Lord is for when everything is going right. I submit to you, when things aren't going right, that's the time to praise the Lord. Amen. The, 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 there, there's a psalm. I love Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6. And David, we believe, writes this. He says, the sor listen to this carefully. The sorrows of death compassed me. And the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. Then in verse 6, you better write this down. You better underline it. You better, if you got a highlighter, highlight it. If you don't like highlighting it or underlining it in your Bible, you ought to make sure you write this scripture down and read it every day. Notice what it says in verse 6. In my distress, in my distress, in my distress, in my distress, I called upon God. My, my, my. And cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry came before him even unto his ears. My God, I feel his presence. Psalm 120 and verse 1 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and he heard me. Psalm 63 verses 1 through 4 says, O God, thou art my God. These are Psalms of David, by the way. O oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for after thee, or for thee. My flesh longeth for thee. Where? In a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory. So as I've seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus I will bless thee. While I live, I will lift up my hands to thy name. I wonder if there's someone here today that needs to worship the Lord. I don't know 
what you all are going through. There's visitors here today I've never met before. I don't know what your circumstance is. I don't know what your situation is. But when David covered himself with that ephod, he was saying, I need to get back to God. I need to get back to worship. I need to get back to prayer. I need to get back into God's presence regardless of my circumstances. I need to praise praise the Lord. A moment ago I said maybe we need to worship. Notice I didn't say do you want to worship? Because sometimes we don't want to worship. But we need to worship. There's a difference, by the way. Sometimes we don't want to worship, but we need to worship. Worship doesn't have to be felt. And that's one thing that I think we are deceived by. We think we need to feel the Lord before we begin to worship. No, 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 no. That is not scriptural. Sometimes when you absolutely don't feel God, that's the best time to begin to praise the Lord because God will usher you past that place of not feeling God, uh, of not feeling even like you want to worship God uh, or even like you want to serve the Lord. There's times where you want to just throw the towel in, uh, but God is saying, don't throw the towel in. Put the towel on. Put the ephod on. Put that prayer shawl on. Put that worship on. Don't put it off. Put it on. Worship doesn't have to be felt. We need to worship just because he's God. Last scripture, this is in Isaiah. Isaiah pens these words. Isaiah 61 and verse 3. It says, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes. I hope you get this. Look at the trade-off here. He's talking about them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Would you stand with me? God wants to transition us to a place that gets beyond feeling, that goes beyond desperation, despair, and disappointment to a place where, God, I'm going to worship you because you're God. I'm going to worship you because I love you. And although I don't see the answer right now, and I, I know even though I don't feel your presence right now, I'm going to worship you anyhow. That's when you get to a place in your walk with God where you're not going to just depend upon everybody else and what they're doing or what they're not doing. Let me explain that. Too often, we let the feelings, 
and the temperature of our worship be set to be set by everyone else. But that's never what the way it was intended to be. The Bible even tells us not to compare ourselves amongst ourselves. Oh, if Sister Susie worships, I'm going to worship. I remember one time as a young Christian, I was going to church and I, I felt like I, I, you know what, listen, you look at me today, I want to tell you something that's a lot different today than when I first got in the church. I was shy. I know you have a hard time believing that. I was shy. You wouldn't catch me anywhere near getting up here. I'd be as far away from that as I could. I was shy. But there had been times in church, somebody would run around church. I was there in the service, and I was feeling the presence of the Lord even before I got there. And I told the Lord before service started, maybe at the very beginning of the service, I said, Lord, if brother so-and-so does his thing, I'm going to run around the church. Brother so-and-so ran every church service. Bible study didn't matter. I mean, he'd just shout. He would just worship. Some people were irritated by it. Don't get irritated by somebody else's worship. So I figured it was a pretty good bet. Excuse me for using that phrase in the house of God. But it was a pretty good bet that brother so-and-so was going to run around church. So I made a deal with the Lord. When he runs, I'm going to run. The one service he didn't run was that service. So the Lord started prodding me a little bit. Are you going to run or is your worship dependent upon him? Or are you looking at everybody else around here and what they're doing? Is, your, is, is your, the worship that you're supposed to send up to me dedicated upon them or predicated upon them? That's all I needed to hear from, from the Lord. And I was gone, man. That was the first time I ever ran around church. It was liberating. It changed my whole percep perception of worship. I'm not saying you've got to run around the church to worship. Please don't take me wrong. That's what I needed. Because it was also in that service that God called me into the ministry. Brother Brown is going to come and lead us in the closing of this service. But I just wonder today, is there anybody here that just needs to worship, needs to glorify God? I'm not diminishing what you're going through right now, but maybe you just need to worship. Don't set your worship as, God, I'll worship you if you do this. No, you worship the Lord regardless of what the results are going to be because he's worthy of it.